Bobby Mercer. Batting for the New York Yankees with one out and nobody on in the ninth inning. The 2-2 from Gazenda. One back to Joe. He spares it. He throws to Tom McCaw at first. And there are two out. complete game unless they get back. This will not be a complete game unless they get back. So we certainly hope that this ball game can be concluded. The players now are clearing the field. As pandemonium is broken loose and the field is filled with many souvenir hunters. The Senators lead 7-5 with two outs. Police are trying to restore order, but the crowd continues to mill all around the field. Some fans are scooping up dirt. more now are converging on the field. The Senators are one out away from victory. The Yankees have two outs in the top of the ninth inning. Realistically, they're a lot closer to defeat because they'll never get this ball game on the way again. The bases are gone. There's a patrolman standing on home plate, another one on the mound, and they're very rapidly becoming outnumbered. A mass of bodies on the field. Most of them just standing there, getting a glimpse of RFK Stadium, the site of Major League Baseball, perhaps for the last time. It may well be that the Senators will be denied their final victory. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, gang, it's Tim Hanlon. How are you? It's Good Seats Still Available, that curious little podcast that is, of course, as always, devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for finding us uh, out there in the wilds of podcast land. And uh, we certainly appreciate uh, you dialing us up for another fun-filled episode. And uh, we're uh, we're back into baseball. It's hot stove season and, uh, of course, there are plenty of stories and teams uh, that we have uh, yet to uh, to tackle. Uh, and uh, this week is a, is a humdinger because we're going to de- tackle actually two, uh, uh, all both rooted uh, in the uh, great nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And the uh, clip that you just heard uh, was from the second version 
of the Washington Senators. And uh, we're going to get into that with our uh, our guest this week, Fred Frommer. He, the uh, author of an awesome book uh, about the history of baseball in Washington, D.C. It's called You Gotta Have Heart. And uh, we're going to get into all the sort of particulars. But uh, the Washington Senators, uh, the second version in the American League, ran from 1961 to 1971. And they were preceded by a team also known as the Senators or the Nationals, depending on your perspective. And we get into that. Uh, with our conversation with Fred coming up uh, that lasted uh, actually from the inception of the American League originally from 1901 to 1960. And yes, if you're if you're doing the math, the first version of the uh, Washington uh, baseball franchise uh, went from 1901 to 1960. And then in 1961 was replaced by another franchise by this with the same name, an expansion franchise. Uh, That first one, of course, uh, absconded to uh, Minneapolis to become the Twins. And then the second version, the expansion version of the Washington Senators uh, that formed in 1961 and left in 1971, uh, ran off to Arlington, Texas to become what is now known as the Texas Rangers. And that clip that you heard at the beginning of the broadcast here uh, was uh, the great Ron Menchine uh, and uh, Tony Roberts uh, calling the very last home game, the actual very last actual full game of the second version of the Washington Senators. Uh, That was on uh, September 30th, 1971, uh, live and exclusive on WWDC AM radio in Washington, D.C. from RFK Stadium. And as you could hear, uh, what was a seven to five lead in the uh, top of the ninth inning with two outs against the dreaded damn New York Yankees. Yes, we get into that part of the conversation a little later. Uh, you uh, Broadway show fans will understand that sort of uh, that sort of reference. Uh, but I digress. Uh, the, 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 they were leading the Senators, you know, one of the woeful teams, especially in their second incarnation, were leading the Yankees in their very final game of their existence before they were running off to Texas. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you hear in the background, but uh, not only uh, did the game devolve uh, into mayhem on the field and ultimately into a forfeit. Uh, if you look at the record books, that book, that book, that game uh, was actually recorded as a 9-0 win for the Yankees, even though the Senators were winning 7-5 to in the top of the ninth. But that's what happened. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's almost emblematic, frankly, of the, uh, the Washington Senators, both versions, uh, and uh, the history of baseball in Washington, D.C. But it is a rich and colorful one, and one that dates back to the earliest days of professional baseball, even before the forming of the American League. We're talking back to the 1870s, 1876, the National League, uh, original formation, the National Association before that. Uh, Washington, D.C. has uh, very much figured very prominently uh, in the history of baseball with uh, with uh, rich teams and stories. And we're going to get into all of that, uh, the Senators and otherwise, with our guest again, Fred Frommer, uh, he, the uh, author of the book, You Gotta Have Heart. And uh, that uh, is a uh, it's a great title. Uh, it is from the uh, Broadway show, Damn Yankees. And uh, if you stick around to the end of the show, uh, we will celebrate that uh, with a little special clip uh, just for you. But uh, stay tuned. Coming up in just a couple of seconds, I just want to, of course, remind you uh, that uh, our website is goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, and uh, we urge you to uh, visit there early, visit there often. And of course, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff, uh, not only all the episodes of uh, of past, but of course, you're going to see uh, all kinds of great sponsors 
uh, of our show as well, including our friends at 503 Sports, the king of throwbacks. It's 503-sports.com. And uh, you're going to get all kinds of fun and uh, interesting memorabilia uh, in the uh, in the realm of T-shirts and uh, and reconstructed jerseys. And uh, if you use the promo code SEATS at uh, 503 Sports, that's 503-sports.com, you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases uh, when you uh, use that promo code. And we appreciate uh, you, uh, you uh, uh, giving them a try. And I think you're going to love what 503 Sports has for you. Also, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, one of our great sponsors. Uh, we've got a promo code for you there, too. It's called Good Seats. Good Seats, that's the promo code for SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. You're going to get 15% off all of your purchases there. And what are you going to find there? You're going to find uh, a tremendous curation of awesome memorabilia uh, outside of the world of shirts and, and whatnot. Things like buttons and pennants and uh, bumper stickers and schedules and books and uh, you know, all kinds of other fun stuff. And uh, this is not sort of your generic uh, eBay type fodder. No, no, no. This is uh, high quality stuff uh, curated by our friend Dean Mitchell and friends uh, that uh, you're going to find is uh, just uh, right up your alley. Uh, I'm sure there's some Senator stuff and certainly some old baseball stuff that uh, you won't just find anywhere. And that's at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS for 15% off all your purchases there. And last but not least, please, by all means, Visit our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com, OldSchoolShirts.com, all kinds of great logo T-shirts of the past, not only of teams and leagues uh, no longer with us or previously incarnated, but also some great cool pop culture stuff. Uh, we're talking about amusement parks and uh, old radio stations and and shopping malls and all kinds of cool stuff from various cities all across the country, OldSchoolShirts.com. Our friend P.F. Wilson and friends in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, and they have a promo code for you, too. For 10% off all your purchases, make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS. GOODSEATS, that's the promo code, 10% off at OldSchoolShirts.com. So thank you to 503 Sports. Thank you to SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And, of course, our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com. Thank you so much for your sponsorship of our little show. And uh, we appreciate you giving it a try and uh, giving us some love when you do so. All right, so we've gotten that out of the way. Let's uh, move on nice and smooth, see, right into our great conversation. We learned a lot about the history of Washington, D.C. professional baseball, usually under the name of the Senators. But uh, there's the Nationals in there. You hit a little Homestead Grays. We'll touch on that for a couple of, a couple of minutes. And uh, it's all good stuff. It's Washington, D.C. baseball with our conversation with Fred Frommer that we had just a couple of days ago. Please enjoy. Why don't you maybe uh, sort of regale our audience as to uh, who you are, what your day job is, and sure. um, and then maybe how you even stumbled into uh, going back in time. Sure. So um, I work uh, in sports public relations, um, but when I wrote the book, I was a reporter um, for the Associated Press. And um, one of the beats I covered today, the Yankee Red Sox rivalry, and when the Expos announced they were moving, or more to the point, the Major League Baseball was moving the Expos to Washington, um, the publisher approached me about writing a book about D.C. baseball history, and of course I, I jumped at the chance. Um, you know, I used to joke with people here in, in D.C. that uh, the city was really missing two key main things for quality of life, and one is a place to get a good slice of pizza and as a, a Major League Baseball team, and I'm um, still looking for that good slice of pizza, but, uh, you know, baseball um, coming here was, it was a really big deal. And, um, and it kind of also fit into my own, um, my own passion about sports and politics because 
Um, when the, you look back at the history of Washington baseball, there are so many times uh, where politics uh, intersects with the, with the team, whether uh, was an attempt by Congress to keep baseball from moving the team or Richard Nixon trying to get a new team for baseball and all the presidents throwing out first pitches and that sort of thing. Um, it goes just right up my alley. So it's something that, I've, that I really dove into and uh, enjoyed writing about. And, and even after the book came out, I've, I've continued to uh, do research and write more stories are you a native, if you will? No, I'm a native New Yorker. I've been here for 20 years, so you could say that I'm stuck with that, uh, for better or worse. So uh, I consider myself a New Yorker, um, but uh, definitely D.C. is my adopted town. Well, so then how do you so how do you even sort of go about sort of looking backwards in, into to Washington's baseball history? Because, you know, even before sort of, I guess, the modern era in 1901 with the American League's formation, right, you had a sort of a primordial ooze, I guess, of professional right. baseball. Before it kind yeah. of you know solidified into both the AL and to the NL, a uh, really great uh, place to start for me was the Washington Historical Society, um, and they actually had a lot of these um, documents from that uh, from Ooze you, know, you referred to uh, from the early days. Um, so, for example, they had uh, the, uh, the the original Constitution from a thing called the National Baseball Club Bylaws, um, which was uh, basically when the two teams that started out really, really in the old days. I mean, talking like 1859, you had a team called the Potomacs and then um, a team called the Nationals. And, and it's really interesting to look at some of the, the bylaws, which I wrote about in my book. Um, well, first of all, baseball was spelled with two words back then, which I, I, I found kind of charming. Um, but also, um, you had to pay uh, 50 cents to, to play as an initiation fee. Uh, you had to pay uh, 25 cents for monthly dues. And you also, the thing I found interesting is that um, there were fines for, uh, for profane or improper language. Um, and so you would get charged 25 cents for disputing an umpire's call. And even if you were to like, express an opinion on a close call before the umpire made his decision, you would get fined a dime. So, um, and that really was keeping in how baseball was perceived at the time. You know, a lot of us consider baseball in its earliest days of, of the modern game, you know, early 1900s, the days Ty Cobb dominated and it was kind of a ruffian sport. And that is definitely true. But you look back at the uh, 1860s, um, especially in D.C., it was seen as a real game for gentlemen. And they had all kinds of rules and about kind of keeping it that way. And, uh, you know, like the fines I mentioned. And, um, and it really wasn't until like kind of the 1880s, 1890s that it became kind of professionalized um, here. You know, obviously, uh, it, professional baseball dated back a little bit before then. But in Washington, it was really the, sort of the 70s and 80s uh, and 90s. And uh, at that point, you, you kind of saw more, a more rough edge to the sport. Oh, yeah. And we've had a few conversations around uh, the original National Association and the Union Association uh, and sort of the uh, the other kinds of assemblages that happened before uh, the NL and the a- a- AL were sort of uh, uh, officially sort of recognized or put together, and and yeah, it was it, 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 it to me it was it's fascinating because you have um, a sport that uh, not only was not professional but it, it was largely an, a, an established amateur sort of pursuit. Um, it was also, frankly, uh, not sort of. Uh, actually, it was almost frowned upon as sort of this idea of professionalism, right? It's almost, you know, you you would uh, injure the purity of the sport, and and then the, yeah. right, and 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 indeed, uh, in in many respects, in sort of late nineteen, excuse me, late eighteen hundreds, you had, uh, you know, these uh, the, the these certainly were characters that played the game. Let's put it that way, and they weren't necessarily uh, always um, sort of saying playing in between the. Uh, you know, uh, in between the uh, the guardrails uh, appropriately, if if you will. 
Right. It was definitely like that sort of uh, image of the the noble pursuit of of sport um, for the pleasure, uh, for you know, for the ideal of it, and and that's persisted, you know, to this day um, in other in other venues. I mean, the Olymp- Olympic sports were like that for a long time, and and then they finally kind of ditched that. But obviously, college sports is the most uh, current example of that where. You know that's kind of the ideal, and it's really running into all kinds of uh, headwinds. Um, so, yeah, we've had that the, sort of the ideal of the the amateur um, athlete that plays, you know, for the for the passion, for the beauty of the game. You know, that's something that's kind of tied into the society, and uh, certainly it, it didn't last that long for baseball, at least uh, at the highest levels. Well, let's circle 1901 for a second, but I want to. Uh, yeah, that's kind of sort of the I guess the unofficial start of our little story here. But let me let me just before we get to sort of the the birth of the American League uh, team that would uh, last for quite some time uh, in the D.C. area. Well, what do you um, – I, I'm really interested in your thought, especially as many are non-natives to the area. Um, it's pretty clear that uh, that the, the, the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, even in the, the late 1800s, right, was very much on the short list of, uh, of cities – uh, for any uh, pursuit of of of, be, of, base, of a baseball league, rather right, professional or otherwise, right? Yet DC was, you know, not necessarily the biggest metropolitan area on the East Coast. Um, why do you think DC or Washington uh, was, uh, you know, always on that sort of short list of of places to uh, to have a club in in these uh, semi and then almost uh, fully professional circuits? Yeah, I mean, it's true. D.C. wasn't really that huge, but I think by the standards of the 1800s, it was a pretty major city. Um, you know, not as big as New York, but, um, you know, you didn't have any teams out west yet. Uh, there really wasn't much of a presence in the south. So, um, you know, you, you had, you know, sort of Washington, Philly, Boston, New York, um, Chicago. You know, you had uh, – it was considered a pretty major city, and I think also being the capital – uh, give it some cachet as well. And, um, you know, there's actually one story in my book, just so I can go back a few decades, um, which is that um, President Andrew Johnson, um, you know, Lincoln's successor, actually hosted a tournament um, at the White House. And uh, and he actually uh, let government workers out early to catch the action. And he went to watch some of the games himself. Um, so uh, actually at the ellipse, right, by the way, so I should correct myself there. Um, so, um, you know, it, it was, I think, p- partly because it um, – you know, for its time, it was it was still considered a, um, one of the one of the bigger cities, and also just the the national capital was a, a factor as well. Yeah, I guess that's pretty true, right? Because it's you know nation's capital, and and arguably it's the nation's pastime, right? So of course right. you'd want to have a team uh, represented politically. That makes a ton of sense, and it just as a as a uh, as a barometer for sort of a, the the national sort of uh, uh, mindset, but. Um, well, all right. So let's talk about uh, the first real, shall we say, substantial club. Frank, and frankly, not only a substantial club in the American League when it got launched in 1901, but but one that uh, that didn't go anywhere, literally and figuratively. Right? It stayed for for many many decades. Um, but yeah. I, I'm a little curious, though, even just the, the even calling them what their name was. Right? I guess they're known as the Washington Senators, the first one. But there's also this Nationals moniker in there. You want to. Give us a sense of sort of what that's all about and why the sort of maybe two names were confusing. Yeah, it is very confusing. And I'll, and I'll go back even before 1901. Um, so um, there was actually uh, a team in the, in the National League uh, um, in 1892, and the National League expanded to 12 teams, uh, called the Washington Senators. And, and they, um, they wound up folding. Um, and so around the time that, that they folded, uh, the American League was formed, and, and they gave Washington a new team. And they deliberately called them the Nationals 
to avoid confusing them with the old Senators team. So it's confusion laid upon confusion. The fans, for the most part, continue to call them the Senators. And so you really had a situation where they were the Nationals, a.k.a. Senators. And if you look back at how the coverage at the time, um, the New York Times uh, pretty much always called them the Senators, even though that wasn't their official name. Look at places like the Washington Post, though. Um, they often didn't call them the Senators. They, would, they called them usually the Nats or the Nationals, but they also had these really funny nicknames that were based on sometimes the name of the owner or the manager. So not to get out of the story too much, but the, the owner's name um, for most of the time was Clark Griffith. And sometimes they called him the, the Griffman because of that. And there was a, a, a manager, a player manager named Bucky Harris in the twenties. And then they sometimes called the uh, reporters called the, the team, the Bucks. So you had all these different, um, you know, colorful names. It was a time as, as you may know, um, in the early 20th century when uh, sports writers were very colorful with nicknames. And so, and they took liberties with the, even the name of the team. So it is confusing, but uh, the short end, the short version of it is they were the nationals officially, but they were known as the senators. And then in the 1950s, they officially changed their name to the senators. And then um, there was a second Senators franchise that came here or that was born after the first team moved, and they were always known as the Senators. There was no Nationals with that one. Yeah, that's that's oh, that's really interesting. And then only, only sort of uh, the coup de grace, right, of course, is when the uh, the current Nationals uh, came into being uh, in the in the 2000s, right? Where in, <laughs> just, uh, so what is it about these two names, right? I mean, you think somebody in a name of the team contest could have come up with something different uh, along the way since 1901. <laughs> yeah. what, what is it about those two particular, particular names that uh, uh, lacked uh, further creativity? Well, you know, uh, there were a lot of teams that were called, um, this goes back maybe to the 1800s, or a little past, but, you know, a lot of teams were called like the National League Baseball Club of, you know, whatever. And sometimes they were referred to as the Nationals, uh, kind of like you see with uh, a lot of teams called United in soccer nowadays. Um, but, you know, in the modern baseball era, 1901 forward, you know, Nationals, I guess, just made sense as the team from the nation's capital. And I agree with you, it's a very uncreative name. And I wish the Nats had, the modern Nats would have a, a different one. The Senators, I thought, was, 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 was a fun name um, because you could kind of caricature it, um, as they often did on the scorecard, kind of this big fat guy with a a hat and a you know cigar and kind of just the epitome of uh, the the fat cat senator, um, but uh, you know that that didn't um, you know that didn't last very long. Um, eventually, you know, we we wound up losing both teams and 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 the reason actually that they wound up with the Nationals um, around the time that the Expos had moved here, uh, Bud Selig wanted to go with. Uh, with uh, the senators for historical purposes and the mayor at the time, Anthony Williams, who was very instrumental in getting the team wanted it to be called the, the grays for the old uh, Negro league team that plays here. And so sure. the nationals was picked as a uh, compromise, which is a kind of a, a lukewarm compromise at that, but it does have the historical uh, connection, which I, which I guess is nice. But other than that, it's not very exciting as the team names go. That's uh, well, it also maybe sets a bit of a tone for uh, how exciting or quote unquote, uh, not so much <laughs> the, the teams have been over the years, but all right. So let's start at the, at the birth of, of the 1901 and the American league and, and the, and the, uh, the national, shall we say officially, um, uh, or the senators. So you p- take your choice at this point, right? Um, right. So uh, the most there's, a, there's this famous quote that seems to have uh, sort of uh, stuck around all of baseball's history in Washington D.C. And I'm surprised to find that it actually uh, kind of got birthed uh, almost in the earliest days as the uh, as this new fledgling American League team 
uh, got off the ground, uh, it wasn't setting the world on fire, shall we say, in terms of uh, their win-loss record, right? Right. First in war. Let's let's back up a second. Washington, you know, first in war, first in peace, and last in the American League. And that was true for many years. Yeah, and that's uh, a guy named Charlie Dryden, who's a Chronicle, a San Francisco Chronicle columnist. And it's actually, I guess, a take on uh, um, on uh, uh, an older uh, sort of eulogy for, for George Washington. That's right, yeah. Uh, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of the, his countrymen. Um, but it's ironic, right, because here it is, you know, you've got the national pastime in the nation's capital. And it just doesn't seem like uh, this team is uh, really uh, doing much of anything, I guess, in terms of uh, winning people's hearts. Maybe hearts, right, but not necessarily wins and losses. No, they were a pretty bad team for the first, you know, 15 or 20 years. Um, they had a really rough rough time of it. Um, and they kind of uh, lived up to that that slogan, unfortunately. Um, you know, the they did, they did wind up um, – picking uh, rather signing Walter Johnson. This is way before anyone drafted anybody um, in 1907. And, and they, they still had a long way to go to get better, but that was an important um, um, mark, mark in Washington history because uh, eventually, you know, they did, were able to build a really good team around him. It took yeah. a long time. And there's no question of Walter Johnson, obviously is a pivotal figure uh, and being in the, you know, uh, hall of famer and, and, uh, I mean, you know, he he was a, a, an amazing uh, pitcher who, you know, won a, an enormous amount of games. But um, they were also, you know, attracted to, I guess, which was uh, a modern, you know, structure uh, in in uh, Griffith Stadium, which um, also has a bit of a, of early legacy for for this team. Do you want to sort of get into Griffith Stadium and uh, and its place in the in the Washington baseball history? Yeah, it was an interesting uh, ballpark. Uh, it was uh, in a neighborhood, um, actually not too far from where I live now. Um, there's, a, there's a hospital there called Howard University Hospital. That's, uh, that's where the stadium is now. And um, it had a lot of little quirks to it. Um, my favorite of which is that um, in center field, uh, there were, the center field kind of went in, like picture a left field corner, right field corner, where there was a center field corner. And that's because uh, they actually couldn't get the owner of the house that was behind center field to sell that uh, piece of property. Now, there wasn't a house there, but there was some land and a tree. And, um, you know, nowadays that would happen in two seconds with them in a domain. Back then, you know, that wasn't as easy to pull off, uh, especially for a non-public um, use. And so they wound up – there was a tree uh, was they wound up building the center field corner around. And the tree became a very, very famous – spot for people to meet, you know, at the ballpark, I'll meet you at the tree out in the center field. Um, so it had, um, it also had these very strange dimensions. Um, right field was very close in, uh, I can't remember exactly what the dimensions were, but I'm going to kind of say around 290 feet, if I'm not mistaken, down the right field line. Um, and they had this really big screen out there or big fence, kind of like reverse uh, green monster. Um, so, it, you know, it was a very easy home run if you can get some height on it, but you had to really lift that ball up, and there wasn't a lot of obsession back then about, um, you know, uh, launch angle like there is today. Um, in fact, th- there's there's one incredible stat. Um, the Senators, for many years, um, just really weren't built for, for power at all. They, they actually were really good at, at, at uh, triples. Um, and so in 1945, um, when they actually were really quite a good team, they almost won the pennant, um, they hit uh, only one home run at home. 
and it was inside the park home run. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's just completely alien to our, the, the way baseball is today. But, um, you know, back then, the, part of it was the dimensions. Part of it was just they didn't have the manpower for it, so they just built their team around speed and, and, uh, and pitching. And uh, they actually would have had a pretty good team despite having, like, literally uh, no power at home. Yeah, and we'll have a couple of photos uh, of this up on on the website and our social media around this <clears throat> around this episode. And uh, it's it's a fascinating some of these aerial shots. It's fascinating. It's sort of a, it's almost looks like this. Uh, you mentioned it's sort of this tree sort of sitting in a corner, literally in the middle uh, of center field, in this sort of odd yeah. sort of uh, 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 you know uh, shape. And it's it's sort of this you know right and left angles. And uh, I, I'm just I'm just surprised that uh, over the period of time in this park. I mean, literally lasted until what? Well, I guess it was like into the uh, into the '60s, right? When, right. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just surprised that uh, over that period of time, you're talking decades, right? There, that uh, that sort of stayed there, and that uh, the the owner of that uh, that space, but but arguably it became a to your point, uh, almost a, a bit of charm uh, to this park. Yeah. So it seems like it was cozy too, right? It wasn't sort of a largely uh, seated, uh, right. Uh, yeah. It was only about, you know, 30, 32,000 seats. Um, sometimes in the world series, they would actually add seats. Um, they would, they'd bring the, this is kind of crazy, but they'd bring the fence in a few feet and put more stands. Uh, you know, you'd see this nowadays in, in playoffs. Sometimes you'll see some of the foul territory will get eaten up and they'll put a couple extra rows in, but that, that there at least some, some logic to that. But back then they would actually do it. They would take away some, some territory, uh, in the outfield. And so you'd see some cheapy home runs hit in the playoffs. Um, sorry, not, there were no playoffs back then. It was just the World Series. Um, in fact, the Senators um, had a couple of, couple of home runs, kind of little dinkers, into left field because uh, and they, the reporters at the time uh, described them as like you know, into the, sort of these uh, the makeshift you know, uh, seats that weren't supposed to be there. Yeah, I also found it interesting too, and we'll, uh, we'll get back to the, uh, uh, to the Nats in a second here, but the Griffith Stadium was also the home uh, of the Homestead Grays, who you mentioned. So maybe now's a good time to sort of put an asterisk on that on 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 that story. Um, the Grays, obviously, a, a well known and well regarded uh, uh, franchise in the uh, Negro National League for for many many years. Not even though really fully dom- domiciled in in Washington D.C. No. Right, but they did play in no. Griffith Stadium. Maybe you can explain to our audience a, a bit of that. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, another version of like, wait, what? Senators, what? Nationals, like Washington, Homestead. So their their official name was the Homestead Grays, and um, Homestead is a was a town outside of Pittsburgh, and they really were headquartered there initially. Um, but for the most part, uh, many years later, they wound up splitting their time between uh, D.C. and and um, and Pennsylvania. And I, th- I think towards the end, more games in Washington. They really became known as Washington's team. They played in Griffith Stadium, as you indicated, um, and, and they um, as, as as good as they were, and they were a fantastic team. You know, far better than the Senators. Um, they're also an important part of Washington's business model, Washington baseball business model, because Clark Griffith, the Senators' owner. Um, rented the stadium out to them and he needed any dollar that he could scrape together. And uh, so it was important part of his, uh, uh, his revenue stream was running that team out to the, to the um, Homestead Grays. It feels to me too, that this stadium before we get off of it uh, was also a convenient place for uh, president, presidential and congressional politics, i.e. Uh, the photo ops and the first uh, pitch of every season, and 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 I guess other sort of uh, dramatic backdrops when and if needed uh, politically. No. 
Yeah, it was sort of uh, just a couple miles up the road from Capitol Hill and and even even closer to the White House. Um, and uh, you know, the Congress, you know, on opening day would would always recess uh, for the day so so players could get up there. Um, in fact, in 1937, when Washington hosted its first All Star game, and that was only the fifth All Star game in history to that point, um, the uh, the Senate was um, in the middle of a heated battle over. FDR's plan to, to pack the U.S. Supreme Court with extra justices. And in the days leading up to it, the Senate Majority Leader was getting a lot of, a lot of comments from senators. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to cancel votes that day, you know, and they, and they really wanted to make sure, as you know, there was no night baseball back then. They wanted to make sure that they could get, get to that all-star game. And if there was, the Senate was in session, that it wouldn't be. And he initially said, I'm not going to rearrange the Senate schedule just to accommodate a baseball game. You know, the All-Star game was a big deal back then. And as you may know, baseball was the only um, team sport that really mattered in this country. You know, ba- baseball, boxing, and horse racing were the, the sports that people cared about. And so um, the Senate majority well, leader, he wound up having to, to uh, compromise, and he, he wound up having a uh, debate that morning on the Senate floor, and he adjourned at noon. That gave guys enough time, senators enough time to get up to the ballpark to watch uh, watch FDR throughout the first ball. Well, it's good to know they had their priorities straight, right? Um, right. I'm, I'm with them. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So, so uh, let's also talk about um, the guy who the park was named after, right? Uh, Clark Griffin, yeah. who... You know, ostensibly came onto the team as a player, as a manager, but then essentially sort of segued in becoming more in the operations and the presidency of the team. Um, it almost feels to me like, and this is on my cursory knowledge, which you have much deeper knowledge of, that uh, his ascendance, I guess, into the uh, the managerial ranks or actually the uh, operational ranks uh, was almost uh, uh, directly tied to uh, the team's uh, increasingly successful performance in the years uh, afterwards. Yeah, so he um, he was really instrumental in, in making Washington a competitive team. It took some time, but um, he, uh, he really knew what he was doing. Um, he um, had been a player manager, um, at a, I think it was, let me see, I think with the White Sox. Um, and um, he, uh, he was a really good Good player. He was a, a spitballer. He was a pitcher, and he, he got by by a lot of guile and you know not a lot of not a lot of gas. Um, and um, he, uh, as you mentioned, you know when he came to Washington, uh, he was initially uh, the manager. He was a part owner as well. So what he did was he mortgaged his uh, his, his ranch out in Montana to get enough money to put a ten percent um, by ten percent of the team. Um, and so he over the years parlayed that you know increased it gradually and finally became um, controlling uh, interest, had a controlling interest in the team. Um, but in the meantime, he, he was manager for the first few years, and he actually did a pretty good job. Um, he got them, uh, put, put together a couple of second-place finishes. Um, he, uh, he um, you know, and, and they were really bad before that. So um, they actually got, uh, under the first season uh, for them, he played, he got them to play at uh, a 599 per spending percentage, which is really good. Um, but he, really, he realized that he wasn't really the guy to lead them um, as a manager, his strengths really more in player development, um, running a team, uh, really uh, even organizing a scouting department. Um, so eventually, he wound up picking a whole bunch of different managers, and he went through them very quickly. Uh, Try one guy for a year, didn't work out. You fire him, go for another year, and uh, eventually things paid off for him in 1924. But I can get to that if you want. Now we can talk about it later. 
Yeah, no, let's do that because, uh, you know, as you sort of look back to this original uh, Major League franchise in Washington, um, not a whole lot of highlights when it comes to championships. <laughs> so you're, you're kind of literally circling on one of the, uh, the three championship seasons uh, starting in 24. Maybe you can talk about sort of a little of the, the run up to that. Yeah, yeah. So um, 1924 was the year this happened. And prior to that, so let's, you know, looking at a snapshot in 23, uh, and in the 23 season, um, every American League team had gone to the World Series except for the Senators and a team known as, uh, this is a peak your interest, St. Louis Browns, another one of those uh, forgotten teams, oh, now the Baltimore sure. Orioles. No doubt. Um, and, and they were, um, you know, the, the Browns were, were kind of like uh, – like siblings of the senators at the bottom of the American League standings, you know they 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 um, were kind of you know Mitch loves, loves company kind of situation. Um, so what what um, Clark Griffith does, he decides to mix things up, um, and he hires his um, his 27 year old uh, second baseman Bucky Harris, and he names him player manager. And um, you know not only had the senators been just kind of a mediocre team in 1923, um, so nobody really thought they were going to go anywhere, but the fact that um, this this untested young man was given the job was seen as even more evidence that they were going nowhere. And sports writers uh, universally panned this. They they called the the move Griffith's folly. Um, it's interesting to think because uh, nowadays there is a lot you see a lot of uh, teams going with untested rookie managers. Um, back then it wasn't it didn't happen quite as much. But there were a lot of player managers that that was a that was a, a phenomenon that you don't really see nowadays. Um, and so uh, this young guy takes over the team, and he um, he has takes takes him a while to get them to play very well. They're they're pretty much like a 500 team uh, for 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 the first 50 games. Ty Cobb um, uh, of the Tigers. He was actually, ironically enough, the, the player manager of the Tigers at that point, and he just mercilessly rode uh, Bucky Harris. He just called him Snookums and baby-faced. And, um, but Harris was tough, but he, he stood up to him. Uh, um, I had a funny story, actually, from um, Bucky Harris's uh, son. Uh, just a few years ago, told me the story. Um, Bucky Harris's son wound up becoming a U.S. attorney and a federal judge here in Washington. And um, he uh, it tells a story of how uh, Ty Cobb um, had uh, – had ran into uh, he basically spiked uh, or tried to spike Bucky Harris and um, you know, Harris basically threw at him to get him to go down and Ty Cobb said uh, you know next time you do that and Ty Cobb was a much bigger man Ty Cobb six three probably two hundred pounds Bucky Harris about five nine and uh, Ty Cobb threatened him and said next time you do that you know I'll I'll break you in two and and Harris said well. Next time you do that, old man, I'll carve you up like a turkey. Um, so it was really good uh, back and forth with these guys. And, and Ty Cobb admitted that he, uh, he developed some grudging respect for him after that. Um, anyway, after about 50 games or so, the team really catches fire. The great story behind this isn't, isn't so much the team uh, playing well. That's obviously the, a big part of it, but how they really captured the imagination of the whole country. Um, I actually wrote a piece for Political Magazine a few, ago, a few years ago called "When the Whole World, the Last Time um, America Rooted for Washington," and you know Washington's not a very popular place now, and it hasn't been for, for a long time. But fans from around the country really wanted the senators to win, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is uh, Walter Johnson at that point was 36 years old, had never gone to the World Series, was a nice guy and, and a great pitcher. Fans really were rooting for him. But also, um, the Yankees had won the three previous pennants. And people were so sick of the Yankees winning all the time, and boy, they didn't know what they had coming in the next hundred years. 
Um, but uh, that was another factor. And so you'd see the senators would they'd go out on these road trips out west. And the west back then was Detroit and Chicago and St. Louis. And the teams would be, um, the, the fans of the other, other teams were rooting for the senators to beat their own teams. That's how excited fans were about this. And they, they were like America's team for that, that season. Well, the New York Giants were heavily favored right in the series, right? Exactly. So the Giants of the National League had won the three previous pennants. So you had really this New York duopoly, New York, New York. Um, as a native New Yorker, I hate to say it, but I mean, I can understand why people were like, let's get someone else in there. Well, hugely and, in, the, in the early days of baseball, right? Uh, There's no doubt. Absolutely. Major teams there for a long time. And yeah, sure. Yeah. And the New York Times, in fact, even had a story and they said that, you know, outside of the most partisan giants, um, partisans, uh, pretty much everyone's rooting for the senators because people are, uh, ha- they, see, they see view New York as, as too powerful and, and they win too much and, and they have everything and they want to see this, this underdog um, take on a giant. So yeah, they had to dethrone the senators uh, to New York powerhouses. Nobody thought they were going to beat the, the, out the, the, uh, the Yankees. Babe Ruth, in his autobiography years later, said that Washington got hot quicker than any team he ever saw before. Um, and the Senators wound up uh, beating them, uh, sorry, sorry, winning the, the pennant on the second to last day of the season. They clinch at Fenway Park, and the fans at Fenway Park storm onto the field and carry the Senators, uh, Clark Griffith, the owner, and some of the players off on their shoulders. They're so excited about this this victory. You know, it probably didn't uh, hurt that they had uh, knocked off the Red Sox heated rivals, the Yankees. But then you go to the, the World Series, and yeah, the Giants were a great team. They had, I think, I think seven future Hall of Famers in their lineup, some incredible number like that. Um, and so, so folks thought that the Giants were going to win the World Series. And it was, it was a great series, and it, it went to seven games, uh, but the Senators finally uh, pulled it off. And it turned out to be their only World Series uh, uh, championship in uh, their what I guess a sixty-year run in, in in Washington. Though they had a couple of um, a couple of American League championships, right? They won the, the AL uh, pennant in twenty-five, the next season, and again in thirty-three. But literally, in terms of championships, that that was it. That's it. And you know, um, you know, Washington was out without a team for thirty-three years. So I'll put that asterisk there, but getting that out in front, it's been 95 years since Washington has won a World Series. It's a long, long drought. And actually, if you don't mind, I will give you a little detail about that World Series, um, just because it's a really um, amazing story about uh, Walter Johnson. So Walter Johnson loses his first two starts in that World Series, and he's so despondent. um, And he has no more starts scheduled, and he said, you know, I'm probably going to retire. And so the storyline really is going to be, and everyone's picturing this, is that you know, this probably, certainly by that standard, the greatest pitcher, and I would argue maybe the greatest pitcher even of all time today, but he's going to go out as a two-time loser. He couldn't do it when it counts. You know, we, we see these stories all the time with, with uh, pitchers and, and other players that, you know, they just can't get it done when it counts. And so they actually wound up going seven games. Um, the Senators are losing 3-1 to one in the uh, eighth inning, and they, they tie the score on a ground ball that takes a bad bounce of the third baseman's head. And the fans go crazy. They throw, like, um, top hats and cushions and newspapers, torn up newspapers on the field. So, actually, the game was held up for several minutes. And when the uh, half inning, uh, rather full end, end of the eighth inning comes in, um, Walter Johnson is summoned from the bullpen by Bucky Harris. Um, and the fans go crazy again. And, and he nearly was a three-time loser. He gives up a one-out triple to Frankie Frisch. And, you know, guy at third base with uh, one out, 
there's a pretty good chance that guy's going to come home and score. But he wound up striking out the next guy and, and wriggling free. And um, and then actually the next inning or the following inning, I can't remember, it happens again. It's, he gets a, a guy at third base. No, he gives up, gives up a leadoff hit uh, in two more innings. But somehow he wriggles free of these jams. Game goes all the way uh, to the 12th inning. And, um, and Johnson winds up winning the game. The Senators... Uh, actually win the game on another bad hop ground ball of a third baseman's head, if you can believe it. And Johnson winds up winning the game. He's a hero and, you know, kind of a swerve ending. Yeah, I mean, you can't, uh, you can't undersell um, or can't overstate, frankly, uh, uh, Johnson's uh, contributions to this franchise. I mean, he literally is the only team he played for in the pros. Uh, and, uh, you know, he went on to manage the team as well for quite some time. I mean, this is one of the guys who's one of the first five uh, inductees in the original inaugural class of the uh, uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame, right? So it feels to me like if there's anybody who is sort of in the pantheon of uh, of Washington Senators, uh, uh, not only Hall of Famers, but, uh, you know, essential, uh, 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 you know, people in the firmament of the organization, uh, and it's in Washington baseball's history, it's probably him, right? Yeah, and that's a great point you make about him being a manager. I think uh, a lot of people don't know that. And he was actually a pretty good manager. Um, the, I think three of the four years, uh, they were at 600 or maybe a, a tick below. Um, but they, they couldn't, he couldn't quite get them into the World Series. And you know, it was hard back then. You know, there weren't playoffs. You had to, you had to win. You had to, you know, there were eight teams in each league, but you had to come in first place. And so that actually is a good segue to that last pennant that Washington won. Uh, Clark Griffith fires Johnson as manager, uh, you know, and I sent him mentality there. And he decides to go with the winning formula that worked in 24. He hires another young infielder to be his manager. And this time it's Joe Cronin, even younger. Joe Cronin, a 26-year-old um, shortstop. And um, he was a really good, you know, unlike Bucky Harris, it was a kind of a, you know, glue type of guy, you know, he was clutch and, and uh, scrappy. You know, Joe Cronin was a ferociously good hitter. And, um, and so Cronin has a great season as hitter, but he also um, somehow gets these guys to play, you know, incredible baseball. And they, actually, that's the best year they had as far as winning percentage, some, somewhere in the 650s, a fantastic winning percentage. Um, and, and in fact, the day that he uh, clinched, or the Senators clinched that, that game, that, that pennant, rather, um, at Griffith Stadium, he was mobbed by this throng of, of people, men and women. They chased him into the clubhouse. He ran out of the clubhouse, uh, through the dugout, and get, got back on the field, and then he ran across the diamond all the way to the center field fence, and there was a, like a kind of a trap door he snuck through, and he ran to his car and drove away. So the guy was really kind of almost like early Beatlemania action in 1933, um, they go on to the World Series, um, but they uh, they went up losing that World Series in five games to the Giants. And as you point out, no team has been back from Washington in the World Series since 1933. Well, he didn't last very long either, though, right, Cronin? I mean, uh, Griffith it seemed like he kind of lost uh, patience relatively quickly despite that uh, AL championship in, in 33. Yeah, so the next year, the Senators dropped from first place to seventh place in the 18 American League. And... Um, Here's the funny uh, backstory to all this. Um, a couple weeks after the season, um, Joe Cronin marries Griffith's niece. So he's kind of part of the family now. And, and it really wasn't that Griffith wanted to get rid of him. I think Griffith still you know, saw him as a, as a member of the family. But at the time, um, the Red Sox had this brash young owner named Tom Yawkey, um, 31 years old, and he offered Griffith $250,000 
for Joe Cronin. And initially, Griffith balked it. He said this, you know, in no way he could part with the phrase of his franchise, but ultimately he felt like he had no choice. And, and that's because um, it was the Great Depression. So, uh, you know, he was struggling like a lot of teams were, but more so for Griffith because, you know, a guy like Yaki, Yaki had inherited uh, millions from his uncle like the year before or the, a couple of years before. Um, and a lot of other owners were independently wealthy as well, whether they inherited the money or they had some other business um, that, that they were to be a bankroll uh, team. Clark Griffith, his whole livelihood was wrapped up in the senators. So, you know, when attendance dipped, as it, of course it did across all of baseball, fun little fact here, the St. Louis Browns one year drew, uh, drew 80,000 people during the Depression for one season, an entire season. Um, the senators weren't quite that bad, but they had trouble drawing people. Uh, you know, a lot of people didn't have money to go to the game and he really felt like he had no choice, you know, and he, and kind of rationalized it as well because, well, this way, um, Yaki, uh, would could give a, have a better life for his, uh, his, his niece and his, uh, nephew-in-law. And, um, and in fact, he insisted when he sold Cronin, um, that, um, Yaki signed him to a Cronin to a five-year contract. So he had some stability and he, and Cronin actually did um, wind up winning a pennant for the Red Sox, but it took many years. It wasn't until 1946 that he won a pennant in Boston. And that was the Red Sox first pennant since they had sold Babe Ruth. So they hadn't won a pennant since 1918. They'd sold Ruth in 1920. All right, time for me to catch my breath, get a cool, tasty beverage, and uh, remind you, while we do so, that uh, our friends at Audible uh, are here to uh, remind you that uh, you can get a free audiobook download uh, of your choice from over 180,000 titles. Uh, if you go to audibletrial.com slash good seats and uh, use that link, of course, to uh, try for yourself a free audiobook on us, uh, gratis, if you will. And you will love the idea of audiobooks. It's uh, it's an awesome way to kill time uh, and uh, occupy and stimulate your mind, uh, perhaps when your eyes are busy uh, doing uh, something else. And of course, there are plenty of uh, interesting books to be found, especially in the world of sports and sports history. And I think our audience might enjoy a few of these, of course, including uh, the seminal work by uh, baseball uh, legend Jim Bouton. It's called Ball Four. It is uh, not only written, but it's also narrated by him. You could use your free credit for that book. And of course, as you know, Ball Four uh, centers around the 1969 uh, one-year wonder that is the uh, Seattle, was the Seattle Pilots of Major League Baseball, but obviously the uh, the background for a whole lot of other observations about the sport of baseball. And it remains to this day, uh, perhaps uh, one of the most celebrated writings about the sport of baseball uh, in this country. Of course, you can also, if you're not a big baseball fan, you can go into the world of soccer uh, with uh, the autobiography called My Turn by Johan Cruyff, the uh, uh, late Johan Cruyff, uh, perhaps one of the world's best ever uh, soccer players. Uh, he of Dutch heritage, of course, uh, plenty of uh, a great legendary years at club play as well as national team play uh, for the Dutch team, as well as for our audience, maybe a little bit of interest, uh, his journeys in the North American Soccer League in the late 70s and early 80s with the uh, Washington Diplomats uh, and the uh, Los Angeles Aztecs. And of course, if you're into football, uh, there's probably no better book, especially if you find yourself uh, really interested in the sort of deep and rich history of the NFL with uh, the book called NFL Football, History of America's New National Pastime. It is written by Richard Crapeau and narrated by Marlon May. That, too, 
uh, is uh, an audiobook that you could choose from over, like I said, uh, 180,000 titles. Uh, there's got to be something in there that's going to be of interest to you. And by all means, give it a try. And we appreciate your doing so at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you're going to get your free uh, audiobook download. You can cancel it any time. And again, even if you cancel it, you can keep that book as long as your device exists. So again, we appreciate it. Give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now back to our conversation. Feels to me that the uh, the move of the uh, St. Louis Browns uh, to Baltimore, right, seem was kind of a something that maybe I don't know uh, either hastened uh, an already sort of shaky enterprise or perhaps uh, uh, set things in motion. Maybe you can kind of guide us through that and maybe correct me or if I'm wrong in my assessment. I think that's I think you're onto something. Um, so the um, and also part of it is that Natalie, the Browns kind of you know, set in motion this, uh, this sort of frenzy of relocation that would take place over the next couple of decades. Um, this is uh, 1954. Uh, the senators, I'm sorry, that the Browns moved to Baltimore, but then Washington doesn't have this market to itself anymore. Um, now they've got competition, and the Browns had, as I mentioned earlier, the Browns had been kind of this cellar dweller with the senators. Um, but when they moved to Baltimore, things changed pretty quickly, and they you know, they become a pretty good team. Um, and here's an interesting thing is, um, you know, for many years, I'm sure you, you remember that uh, Peter Angelos uh, used his uh, monopolistic baseball power to keep a team from coming to Washington. He claimed that Washington was Baltimore's territory. Well, in, um, in 54, when the Browns came here, um, Griffith, Clark Griffith, waived his territorial rights to the region. Um, and he got some financial um, concessions, but it wasn't really that much. And, and so that, that was not reciprocated many years later. Uh, so, yeah, I think it kind of gets in the, in the head of not really Clark Griffith, um, because I don't think he would ever move the team, but he wound up dying, uh, I think, a year or so later. He died in 55, I believe. That's correct. And his, uh, his nephew and adopted son, Calvin Griffith, takes over the team. And... Um, you know, once once that happens, it's, you know, he didn't have the same uh, loyalty, to say the least, um, to, to, to this region. Um, and he actually, um, there, there were stories about him talking about moving the team, perhaps, um, to, uh, to another city, he, not, not, not Minnesota initially, um, but uh, there was talk about moving the team out to, uh, to California. This is before the Dodgers and Giants moved out there. Um, well, so, uh, you know, before we, before we get to that, again. what do you, what do you think, yeah. what do you think was in the elder Griffith's head uh, about sort of waiving the, the rights and allowing Baltimore, you know, what, 40 some odd miles away from, from DC, did yeah. you think maybe there was going to be a sort of a, a local rivalry, especially with the team that, uh, arguably was, uh, kind of their, uh, cellar dweller, uh, 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 and, uh, co-inhabitants, uh, or, or, or was there any sort of understanding as to maybe why he did that aside from some arguably modest financial uh, concession? You know, I haven't come across any reason. You know, I, I would speculate that, you know, he, um, as good of a baseball man as he was, I don't think that he was that much of a cutthroat businessman. And, um, you know, it was a different era as well back then. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, people, you know, just to give you an example, um, when I found out about how the senators changed their name, uh, the, you know, they, they were actually, as I mentioned earlier, the nationals for most of the, their existence in the mid fifties. Um, uh, I interviewed, um, the guy that helped, you know, 
change the name. And he actually was the, he was helping design the, the graphic for the team. And he said it'd be better to design a graphic for a senator than a national. And he said there was like nothing to it. It was like there was no like, he, as far as he recalled, there wasn't any like big copyright issue or anything. You know, now it would be like a whole big deal. You have lawyers involved. And so it was just a more innocent era in that sense. So that might have been part of it. Um, maybe he just didn't, uh, maybe he didn't really, he had the, the leverage that he did, or maybe teams didn't have as much leverage as, as they do now. Um, so it's, it's, I'd, I'd be speculating, but, um, you know, I don't think it was something that was, that, that came naturally to be kind of a, a cutthroat owner. Um, well, but, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's arguing from the position of strength either, right? Because this was a team that was, uh, uh, I don't know, not a proverbial doormat, but certainly wasn't always, uh, you know, not necessarily the strongest and most uh, vi- uh, vi- um, vibrant team, I guess, in the in, in the majors. Oh, yeah. I mean, by the 50s, they were a terrible team. I mean, for the most part, they may have had, I think they had like one barely winning season. Or, But, you know, the, the, the title of my book, You Gotta Have Heart, um, is a song from the musical Damn Yankees. And uh, you, you probably know the, the story behind this. Um, you know, Damn Yankees initially was a novel, turned into a, a Broadway show and a movie. And uh, it's about um, a Senators fan that is so despondent about how bad his team is and how the Yankees always win the pennant. In fact, the novel was called The Year the Yankees Lost the Pennant. Um, that he sells his soul to the devil so that he can be transformed into Joe Hardy, this uh, strapping... 25-year-old uh, center fielder. He leads the team uh, to the pennant over to the uh, over the Yankees. Um, but here's a funny little detail. So 1955 is the year that that uh, show opened on Broadway. But in real life, in 1955, the Senators came in last place and the Yankees came in first place. So at that point, the only way that the Senators could actually win was like through fiction or you know fans' imaginations. It wasn't going to happen on the baseball diamond. Well, okay, so uh, uh, then let's trace the uh, the beginning of the end then of this franchise, right? So it seems simplistic to say Griffith the Elder died and his nephew and adopted son took over and thus, you know, the 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 unwinding began. But it, it feels to me like there's, there's plenty of, um, I don't know, angst and or uh, other things going on that was uh, maybe slowly setting this stuff into motion even before that uh, that tragic event happened. Yeah, you know, it, it's hard to know what Clark Griffith would have done. Um, so around this time, this is 1956, um, the team's board of directors actually considered uh, bids from four other cities to move the team. And uh, as I mentioned, California was part of that. L.A. and San Francisco were two. Minneapolis, where the team eventually moved, and Louisville, which I find kind of interesting. And they decided to stay. Um, so uh, Addie Griffith, who was Clark Griffith's widow, um, uh, said, uh, "You know, this is wonderful news. Clark loved the city, and I know he never would have left Washington." And but and Calvin Griffith, the one guy who winds up moving the team, he says, um, "We're happy to remain here. I hope to we stay here the rest of our lives." And he and he around, around the time he also made some kind of sweeping statement that he would never move the team. You know, Washington here, Washington forever, something to that effect. And he wound up blaming an overzealous PR guy for that, saying those weren't his exact words. Um, but if you believe Clark Griffith's uh, widow, you know maybe Clark Griffith doesn't move the team. It's hard to know. Uh, you can't. You can never really. Um, you know, kind of prove a counterfactual, but uh, he certainly wouldn't have jumped as, as quickly as, as Calvin Griffith did. So what was it about Minnesota, Minneapolis-St. Paul in particular, for the uh, the relocation, ultimately, of this franchise? I mean, we, we've had, we had a, um, 
uh, a very interesting episode with uh, a guy named Russ Buhite, who um, uh, was a farm player for one of the fledgling uh, Continental League teams that uh, obviously the league never sort of formed. But uh, Minneapolis was absolutely one of those teams uh, dangled in as part of the uh, formation or the beginnings of this Continental League. Um, I'm wondering mm-hmm. how that sort of played into it and or ultimately uh, how how the team wound up in Minneapolis versus, say, uh, say San Francisco or some or Louisville or some of those other places that you're talking about. Well, by the time they uh, they moved, which was uh, 1961, the Dodgers and Giants had already moved out west, so um, those were sort of precluded at that point. Um, you know, Louisville, uh, just not the same size market as Minneapolis, um, and it was uh, you know a growing city, or actually two cities. You know, it's Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, and, and had a good baseball tradition. Um, I believe Ted Williams played there, right, in the, in the minor leagues. Um, and so, you know, it, and also Washington um, is a great market now, and it's a really big, bustling, booming city, but it was not that way in the 50s. It was actually kind of a small, southern, sleepy city. Um, it was small. It didn't have that many people. Um, it was uh, a lot of transients, as it is today, um, but it didn't have... Um, anything close to the economic uh, output that Washington has now. And, you know, they played in front of really, really tiny crowds. Um, So part of it was just that Washington, um, you know, there was a sort of vicious cycle where the team was bad, so fans stayed away. And when fans stayed away, there wasn't money to put back in the team, so it got worse. Um, So it was just kind of this death spiral. But the interesting thing is that um, the one thing that Washington fans had going for them uh, as far as a team, is that Congress wanted a team here. And, um, and, and they actually, uh, members of Congress, threatened to take away baseball's antitrust exemption if Washington were to move. Um, and that actually kept the team here a few years later than it probably would have been. Uh, but eventually, um, the American League found this sort of way out of that. And that is that, um, you know, they gave, uh, w- while the senators moved out to Minnesota, they immediately awarded a new baseball team to Washington, the expansion senator team. Um, and so that really uh, was a way to placate Congress and, um, you know, keep uh, by having a team here. And now, interestingly, um, when the team, uh, when the vo- other teams voted on allowing the Twins to move, I can't remember the, right off the top of my tongue who this was, but um, there was one or two, I think at least one team that said, why don't you let Minnesota get an expansion team and let D.C. keep the senators? And that was not a semantic point. The senators were as bad as they were in the mid-50s. In the late-50s, they started to turn things around, and they were on the verge of becoming a very good team. Um, and they actually, as you may know, they wound up winning the pennant in Minnesota in 1965. But they had a lot of good players like um, like Carmen Killebrew that were on, on the verge of greatness and others. Um, and it, it's interesting to think about if they had flipped that and if Washington um, gets to keep that team that was jealous a little bit um, and Minnesota gets the expansion team, would things have worked out differently in Washington? Could they have built it on that team? And maybe they would have been here throughout, you know, throughout current present day, but we'll, we'll never know. All right. Well, let's let's unpack that a little bit because there's a whole bunch of things that sort of don't necessarily add up. But then again, this is through the, the lens of history and even before I and you were born, probably. So, um uh, it the, the late the late 50s feels to me like so i here's the question really how much uh out there in the uh, in the open say amongst the fans and 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 baseball generally 
was it an open secret that basically the senators were essentially on the move or going to move um, and it just kind of delayed and played out or how much of this was sort of done, if you will, behind the scenes by the, uh, yeah, by the younger. That's a good question. It wasn't an open secret. It was just open. Uh, there was no secret about it. So um, October 50, October of 1956, um, this is uh, just a year after Clark Griffith died. Um, that season, the senators drew 432,000 fans. And, and that's like a, kind of a mind-blowingly terrible number. Um, and so that October, he told reporters he was considering moving the team to San Francisco or L.A. Um, and as, of course, you know, there was no, no baseball out there. And, and a year later, the Dodgers and Giants moved out there. And then as indicated earlier, um, yeah, a year or so later after that, there was talk about um, – uh, actually, around the same time, actually, I should say this, they, they, they also considered bids from uh, Louisville and Minneapolis, and they wound up staying put. So this was this was being talked about out in the open, um, and it, it unnerved a lot of people. And, and that's, again, when you hear people say, oh, well, Clark Griffith wouldn't have done that. And, and you know, the, a lot of the old-time Senators fans, they love, they talk about Clark Griffith with such fondness, and they, oh, but that Calvin Griffith is terrible. You know, so there is sort of this duality. Uh, you know, as we discussed, we don't really know what would have happened. Um, with with uh, with Clark Griffith, he had, had he lived, I mean, he was pretty old, so that's unlikely. But you know, uh, had he been uh, the owner in sixty sixty one, would he move the team? Um, it's hard hard to say. But I think he would have given them a little bit longer a longer leash than uh, certainly than his nephew did. All right. Well, and then so let me, and then let's uh, go through this little dance here you're talking about about uh, the the team moving and then being effectively replaced by a by a right expansion franchise. Right. So uh, it. Uh, so the, the the congressional threat thing, uh, I, I don't know, did it work or didn't it work, right? Because I, I, I guess I don't understand the logic. If a team is going to move to to Minnesota and then be immediately replaced by an expansion franchise, to your point, you know, why not uh, uh, skip that step and, and, and expand in, in Minneapolis first and keep the senators there? But I guess it seemed that, you know, the senators had kind of already, you know, had already sort of... Uh, I want to say made their grave, but it certainly, you know, it didn't seem to be getting any better anytime soon. So I guess there had to be some kind of jolt to the system. But how does how do you replace a team, you know, literally the next season, by the way, calling it basically, you know, the same team? The same team. Right. I, I, I just I, and how do the fans feel about that? I mean, I, it's not like you can now we get into some really interesting stuff like, well, where does the history of that old team go? Does it go to the twins? Does it stay in Washington because the team is really the same name and they're playing in the same park, for God's sakes? I, I, I'm just I, I can't imagine being a baseball fan in 1961 trying to sort of, I guess, justify and or square yeah. all this stuff. Right. So just to ask your first question, you were talking about, like, why not just like give the expansion team to Minnesota and let them start over and keep the team. I mean, the, the, the answer to that is because Calvin Griffith wanted to move the team to Minnesota because they were, uh, as indicated, they were, they were actually turning a corner a little bit. They had a more established team. They, were, they had some stars and an expansion team by definition, uh, the uh, Las Vegas Knights uh, exception notwithstanding, um, the um, expansion teams are almost always terrible. And so Calvin Griffith, you know, had a, given a choice and the, American League did give him that choice, or they let him move his team, um, and he he took it. And um, and also there there was some some race issues as well. Um, years later, uh, he he famously made some comment about how uh, this is, I think in 1978 that you know he moved the team here because you got good hardworking white people here, um, and in contrast to that with the um, African American. Uh, 
city of Washington, not predominantly black city. Um, so I think that was, that was unfortunately a, a factor as well. So he had his reasons and, um, you know, it was private enterprise and he, he decided he would do it. And, uh, you know, Congress was able to be essentially placated, uh, by this, uh, expansion team, which, uh, which was really uh, not a very good team. Yeah, so it, it um, I, I'm, I'm guessing that there was sort of this uh, not only the uh, the potential sort of antitrust sort of threat, but also this Continental League thing. I, it just seems like it's a, a very uh, uh, meandering way to sort of get to, I guess, sort of the same thing. But let's also talk about uh, the stadium situation. I, I'm wondering if that had something to do with it, because uh, while the new senators uh, played uh, their first season uh, at Griffith Stadium, there was this new stadium on the horizon, right? And I'm wondering, right. I'm wondering what that later became RFK Stadium. I guess it was called the District of Columbia Stadium prior to right. it being renamed later. Um, was that? Do you have any sort of inkling as to why that stadium was the stadium part of the mix, and was it built or was it being built uh, with a with a baseball club in mind in the first place? That you yeah, I mean, you know, back then. Um, a lot of stadiums were multi-purpose baseball and football and Griffith stadium was uh, home to the Redskins as well as, as the, as the senators. And, um, you know, Griffith stadium was, was, it was kind of time to go despite its charm. And so the federal government actually built this new stadium in Washington for both the senators, um, and the Redskins. Um, I don't really recall much, um, in my research about the, the senators or Kellen Griffith specifically complaining about, the stadium, and that's why he was moving the team. That that certainly happened uh, a decade later uh, when Bob Short wound up moving the uh, the Senators to Texas, um, complaining not so much about uh, well, about the stadium, but also just really how how much revenue he could, he could extract from the stadium and that sort of thing. Uh, but no, I don't think the stadium was was really a big factor um, in the team's move. It was really just they just couldn't draw, and uh, they wanted to try something a little different. How about the fans? I mean, how were the fans? I mean, were they wearing the right? No, that's a, I'm glad you brought that. Ball caps that. and stuff. The fans I spoke to um, from that time, uh, they, a lot of them said they were they were happy to see Calvin Griffith go. He was very unpopular. He was cheap, um, and as I, as I mentioned, he was talking for several years about moving the team. So, um, you know, if he had just moved and there'd be no team to replace him, it would have been a lot of heartbreak. But a lot of people I talked to said, you know, they were glad to start over with a clean slate, a new team, you know, the, uh, and a new ballpark, as you say, on the horizon a year later. Uh, so um, I think people just kind of switched like that. You know, they, they were able to adopt this new team. And, you know, it, it, it did sort of logically seem like a continuation of the old team, despite the fact there's a different franchise, has the same name, same ballpark. Um, you know, it's just, it just seems like basically almost like a, uh, technicality that they're they're not the same the same team because well, the fans minds they kind of are and they kept the joke alive right they just added the just yeah, first sure more first a piece and still last in the American League this team uh, you know I if if you could give the old Senators uh, some due at least had some championship sparkle uh, and a couple yeah. of winning seasons under their belt right this team do I have this right in the ten years that the 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 new version of the Senators were there. Or eleven seasons, exactly. ten or eleven seasons. Eleven, eleven years. Eleven seasons. Okay, so yeah. only one running record in those eleven seasons, right? And um, that's a great story, actually. If you don't mean get into that, that 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 is such a fun team. That that was the nineteen sixty nine Senators, um, and yeah, they the, the, just to give you a little backstory. Um, the team was so bad that in in nineteen sixty four, 
the slogan on the yearbook was uh, kind of their, their rallying cry was off the floor in 64. Like that was their goal. And they came in, uh, I think, in ninth place. So they kind of barely met it. You know, back in, the, in the 60s, after uh, the early expansion, early 60s, both teams had 10 teams. And so last place was even worse than it had been in the old days. This is 10th out of 10 teams. That's just like really demoralizing. So um, 69 comes around. Um, actually, I should back up a second. 68, um, the team's for sale. And uh, a, a Minnesota businessman named Bob Short uh, buys the team. And Bob Short had been the owner of the Minneapolis Lakers. And um, he uh, either moved them to L.A. or he sold them to a, to a guy who moved them to L.A. So his track record wasn't very good as far as keeping teams in place. And he made a point of saying that he wasn't going to commit to keeping the team here um, if he found better opportunities. So there was already, it was almost like the open secret from before we talked about. I mean, it wasn't quite as blatant. He wanted to keep the team here, but he, he was pretty uh, um, open about the fact that he wasn't going to make any commitments. Now, he was a pretty bad owner, but one thing he did that was really good was hire Ted Williams as his manager, his first manager. And Ted Williams had been away from the sport uh, for a long time. You know, he had um, hit that uh, famous home run um, in his last at-bat at Fenway Park in 1960, didn't tip his cap to the fans, and then kind of went off in the distance. Uh, and, uh, and you never really heard from him. I mean, you did, but he wasn't really around the game so much. So 69, they, they bring him back. And, um, and Bob Short... Um, uh, recalled this actually in a magazine interview uh, a couple of years later, um, how he convinced Ted Williams to come out of retirement. Williams initially didn't want the job. And Bob Short said, um, you know, I told him he owed it to the country, he owed it to baseball, he owed it to Nixon, um, which is really funny because Bob Short had worked for Hubert Humphrey. He was Humphrey's chief fundraiser in the 68 campaign against Nixon. But he knew that Ted Williams loved Nixon. Um, and so Ted Williams takes the job. And he does an incredible job of getting these guys to play really good baseball, um, especially the hitters. Um, you know, there was some one, uh, some folks wondered, you know, could a guy like Ted Williams be patient enough with players who were going to all be his much inferior to him? And he said, as long as they hustle and they play with, with some, uh, some spark, then he'll be fine with it. His main goal at the time was getting the, the team to be a better offensive team. And let me just give you a couple of examples. A guy named Eddie Brinkman, uh, who was a shortstop, had hit um, 188 and 187 the two previous seasons. So he had a lot of, uh, of inc- uh, improvement to go. He was a good fielder. And so Brinkman told me a funny story. In spring training in 69, uh, Ted Williams said to him, they tell me you're a good uh, fielder, but you, you can't hurt, hit worth a lick. Um, I don't want to see you carrying a glove the next two weeks in spring training. I want you to focus exclusively on hitting. If I see you carrying a glove, I'm going to hit you upside the head with a baseball bat. Not upside the head. Hit you on the head with a baseball bat. And so uh, Brinkman uh, you know, just focused on hitting, and he wound up becoming a pretty good hitter. Hit in the 260s that year. Um, Frank Howard uh, was a fantastic hitter, but was not a very selective hitter. Didn't walk very much. And so he impressed upon Frank Howard that he also should at least be more selective, try to take more walks. And that takes me to opening day 1969. Um, Ted Williams' first game as manager. Richard Nixon uh, is watching the game with the new baseball commissioner, Bowie Kuhn. And Bowie Kuhn is talking to Ted Williams about the great job that Ted Williams is doing with the hitters. And he said, um, you know, he's made Ted, a, he's, I'm sorry, he's made Frank Howard a much more selective hitter. You're going to see a lot more walks from him. The first pitch comes, it lands six feet in front of home plate. Frank Howard swings at it and obviously misses it. And uh, uh, Nixon and Bui Kuhn just look at each other and exchange glances and they just laugh. They don't even say a word. But actually, that was just an outlier. 
Frank Howard winds up having a great year. He winds up nearly doubling his walk performance, walk, walk totals, hits 48 home runs, and Ted Williams leads the Washington Senators to their only winning season. Uh, they actually uh, 10 games over 500, and um, you know there was actually some some excitement. And the Senators drew 932,000 fans, which is not a lot by today's standards. Back then, a million was considered pretty good, and it was definitely a very good total for Washington. It was um, the, 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 basically, I think, the second highest attendance they had up until that point in time, covering well, two franchises. Yeah, I mean, they they, they improved their their season from '68 uh, by 21 games, and and it was also they also had the uh, the Major League All Star uh, game that year at uh, RFK. Um, right, right, and um, the, the New York Times actually at the All Star break they they took note and they said that um, that. Ted Williams uh, is at the center of like a baseball renaissance in Washington. And, and at that time, by the way, at the All-Star game, they were only 51 and 50, which is, you know, not that big of a deal. But by Washington standards, uh, it was incredible. I mean, they, they had been such a terrible team the, the previous, uh, was it, seven or eight years. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a really exciting time in Washington. You had the All-Star game. Frank Harrod hit a home run uh, in that All-Star game. He also uh, dropped a fly ball, but we can – kind of put that uh, in the laster category. Um, so there was a lot of excitement in Washington, and, and, and there, was, there was some optimism that, that things would actually, you know, maybe things, Ted Williams had, t- had turned a corner. So w- w- what happened? What, what did, uh, was Short <laughs> basically, uh, you know, uh, did, did he lose? The magic wore off. The magic wore off. So well, magic he, wore, um, did he lose conviction? Did he, was it things that he did, or did he kind of, did it just sort of magically rub off, and then he just kind of lost patience? Well, I, I, there are several factors. Uh, Bob Short was was a pretty um, bad baseball executive. He wound up trading the left side of the infield um, in a big package deal for uh, for Danny McLean, you know, who, um, as you probably know, won 31 games in 1968, uh, but was a bit of a head case. And he, here's a story that that should have given the Senators pause about about Danny McLean in 1969. At that All-Star game we just talked about, um, the initial game had been rained out, um, so they rescheduled for the next uh, the next afternoon. And Danny McLean flew back uh, to Detroit <laughs> that next morning to, to keep a dentist appointment. And he, and uh, he got back to the, the ballpark. He was supposed to be the starting pitcher. And uh, by the time he got to the ballpark, it was the fourth inning. So he didn't, he didn't pitch. Uh, he didn't start, rather. So they put him in as a reliever. He pitched one inning, and then they took him out. And he left, and he flew uh, his plane somewhere else. So uh, Murray Chass had a really good line about him, said he was the envy of every working man in America. He left uh, – he got to work late and he left early. Um, a bit of a head case, you know, had, had been suspended by, uh, by Bill Kuhn for a couple of things. Um, and, uh, but somehow this, this guy was the guy Washington wanted. So he was a disaster in Washington. Some other moves didn't, didn't work out. And, and, and Ted Williams was, was very good, as I mentioned, at getting the best out of players, but wasn't really a great strategist. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you can you bottle something, you, you, know, you catch lightning in a bottle, I should say, uh, and, and it doesn't really uh, last very long. So he's there for two more years in Washington, and then the team moves, and then he, yeah, Tim Williams moves with the team to Texas. He's ultimately replaced by Whitey Herzog as a manager in Texas. All right, well, let, let's talk about those last days in D.C. then. And by the way, quick, yeah. uh, a quick uh, asterisk on this. Um, uh, I, I, tell me if I have this right. A short uh, outbid comedian Bob Hope for the team. In six right. Uh you That's wonder right. I gotta tell you, friends, I, I wonder how uh the team would have been different under uh under uh, Bob Hope's uh, tutelage, I wonder. But more at least more entertaining, we, we can say that. <laughs> and then you fa- fast forward to um end of uh seventy one and uh short is, is making all these demands. Um 
Actually, they weren't that unreasonable. Um, he wanted a uh, bigger share of, uh, of the concessions and, and parking, and he, I don't think he got any parking revenue at the time. Um, you know, the, the stadium was run by this um, federal commission of some sorts, and, and they, were, they were, weren't that really accommodating to him. Um, but Bob, Bob Hope actually uh, emerged again and tried to buy, buy the team from Short and Keep in Washington, but he couldn't meet Short's asking, asking price. And um, so the uh, the last game of the season, the last game of, of the Washington Senators, is played uh, at Old RFK Stadium. It's against the Yankees, and um, the Senators have a seven to five lead. And so it looks like they're going to go out at least as victors. And a lot they're, they're a pretty good crowd, the twenty thousand people, which is really big for for those standards, uh, those times. Uh, people were sad. They had all these signs that said "Short stinks," and it was kind of like a funeral slash celebration slash send off and um and Frank Howard hits a home run and he blows kisses to the uh to the the fans and uh and he says to the catcher as he crosses home plate he says thanks for the gift apparently he the catcher told him he was going to get a get a fastball and grooves and had the pitcher groove him one um but in the ninth inning with two outs one out to go the fans storm onto the field and um the players had to literally run for their lives and the game had to be suspended or and basically called, and it became a forfeit for the Yankees. As you know, the, the traditional forfeit score is 9 nothing. so the centers actually lose that game 9 to nothing in a forfeit to the Yankees. The Yankees of all, plays, of all teams, too, you know, the team that had, uh, they'd been such good rivals with in the 20s and 30s. And, and a bitter taste in fans' mouths, or, or had it been kind of a, a, you know, a, a, a slow and, and, and sure demise? Uh, was, oh, def- it, was it abrupt? No, bitter, bitter taste, bitter taste. Um, there's a great uh, story in my book from, about a guy named Baseball Bill Holdforth. He was a, uh, had been an usher at the ballpark. He also had been a bouncer uh, at Capitol Hill um, uh, bar. And... Um, so he was so angry and short that uh, the next year when, when the Orioles came, I'm sorry, when the, uh, the Rangers came to Baltimore, you know, the old senators, um, he actually wound up, uh, he put together this effigy of Bob Short. And um, he, uh, he and his friends, they kind of mapped out this plan. And, they, and in the fourth inning or so, and they had somebody make sure people photog- photograph it, um, he uh, wrote, unfurled this big sign and an effigy, you know, this is, you know, George Stinks, and um, somebody actually poured a beer on Bob Short's head as well, and everyone thought that it was this guy that did it, this guy Baseball Bill, and Baseball Bill's response was, no, it was some other person, I would never waste a beer on that guy. Well, I, you know, I, I, where does Major League, so what do you think Major League Baseball made of, of all of this in this market? Because it did take, you, you mentioned earlier, 33 years to to finally get yet another team back into the Washington, D.C. area. Um, they rode off Washington. There's no doubt about it. They saw it as a two-time loser. Um, they, you know, the, the city was, uh, you know, kind of poor and um, it didn't have the population uh, base that, that like a whole region would have. They just, uh, baseball was really, uh, was not interested in coming back to Washington for a long time. Um, I found an interesting uh, tape, actually, of Richard Nixon uh, talking to the mayor of Washington in October of 71. This is a month after the team moved. And he was plotting to got to get another team here. He, um, he talked about getting the Indians here because uh, the Indians weren't drawing very well, or maybe the White Sox. And he predicted that, oh, by 1976, with the baseball centen- with, I'm sorry, with the national bicentennial, 
for sure uh, there'll be a new team here. And of course, it didn't happen. There was a, a, a close call. Uh, the Padres um, were um, almost moved to the San Diego Padres in the, I think it was 74. Um, there was a, uh, a deal basically to bring them here. And it was so basically so uh, set in stone that Topps printed baseball cards of the Padres and it said Washington National League. And uh, Ray Kroc uh, became the savior or the villain, depending on your perspective, and wound up buying the Padres and keeping in in, uh, in San Diego. And then um, after that, really, Angels became this this uh, obstacle, you know. And here's the interesting thing: um, in '71, when there was a vote about letting the Senators move. Um, one of the only teams to vote no was the Baltimore Orioles. It wasn't Peter Angelos. It was somebody else at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, you'd think that they'd, they'd want the team to move because they could have the market to themselves. Well, I talked to Bowie Kuhn about that, and Kuhn said it was just for show. They knew the way the vote was going, and they didn't want to piss off Washington fans. And then he immediately after the move said, from now on, we are, this is Baltimore territory. Washington is Baltimore territory. So that was a big complication as well. But over the years... As Washington became uh, a much bigger and more um, affluent city, uh, it was hard for baseball to, to look away. I mean, there weren't that many choices for the Expos to move to. I mean, they talked about Vegas, but, you know, Vegas really wasn't ready for uh, – let's put it this way. Baseball wasn't ready to move to Vegas then. I think they probably are now. Um, you know, Charlotte was another one that they looked at. Um, but, but Washington was really the, the e- easy call and they, you know, they still the Angelos factor, but they wound up just, just kind of buying him off. And, um, and it's been, it's actually been a, you know, a good run here, uh, these last, what is it? Uh, 13, 14 years. All right. A couple of quick notes as we round, uh, we round third and, and slide into yeah. this has been, this has been called, cool. I mean, this is a big survey, a broad survey, and I know we will go into more depth and more detail, certainly on the Grays and certainly on, uh, on other parts of the, uh, these two teams' stories uh, in our episodes to come. But um, uh, there, uh, let's talk about the current team's name. It seems like there was at least some, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a tip of the old uh, baseball cap to uh, what came before them, including, by the way, it seems like the uh, uh, some of the scripted lettering and the colors of the team uh, from the old uh, of the of both versions of the teams prior. No, yeah, I think that they're, they're trying to really um, make this sort of a continuation. You know, to your, to your point earlier uh, about like you know uh, the senator, the twins, the senators, uh, you know, or the or the expos. You know, I, I think that people generally think about the city, and so. Um, I don't think a lot of people here care that much about the old Montreal Expos. Sad as that is, I think it's a, it's a great franchise. Um, I think eventually Montreal will get a new team, and and that that new team will then kind of like um, inherit the old Expos legacy. And that's what happened here in Washington. You see uh, these statues of Walter Johnson and others, and and you have. Uh, have you been to the ballpark, by the way? Have been to uh, Nats Park? Yeah, it's it's quite beautiful. It's uh, it's it, it fits in very well, and it's it's really come along and, and certainly helped that uh, that part of the uh, of the city no, no, without question. Right, right, and and you, and you've probably seen you know there are all kinds of um, these, these great uh, photos uh, uh, that pay tribute to the old stars, not just on the centers but the Homestead Grays. You know, I think that the the way the Nats look at it, and I, and I think uh, rightfully so, is that. This is a continuation of that old baseball tradition, and you know it's it's so fun to look back at uh, at Walter Johnson in 1924 and, and and compare him to like like I wrote a piece actually comparing uh, Steven Strasburg uh, 
right before he made his big debut, the hype around Strasburg to the hype around Walter Johnson, believe it or not, it was pretty similar. Um, you know, you had a headline in the Washington Post that said, secures a phenom. And this is, uh, nobody had even seen Walter Johnson pitch. It was all based on a scout's uh, description of him, pitching out in, uh, I think it was uh, somewhere out west. I, I wish I had that uh, handy. But, um, you know, they, they didn't even know, no one, no one under these sports writers had, had seen the guy pitch, but they're going by eyewitness uh, accounts, uh, firsthand accounts, and uh, the hype was real. And so it's, it's fun to make those comparisons. Uh, I had a piece um, in the Washington Post uh, recently about how if Bryce Harper leaves, it'll kind of be like Joe Cronin leaving the Senators uh, in 1934. So that those kind of uh, connections over time, going, up, going back over 100 years, those are fun for fans and for for baseball nerds like me, and I, I suppose you. So, um, you know, I, I think that the team has consciously tried to incorporate that history, um, and it makes sense, and especially since the team really was known as the Nationals, the official name was the Nationals, that it's, it it's, uh, makes sense that um, these Nationals can be seen as, as another version of that team. Um, so it's, you know, and especially when and if the Senators ever win a World Series, you know, we can say if it happens this year, it'll be first time in 95 years, but maybe it'll be 100 years. And, and I don't want to, I'd hate to see it last that long, but it would be kind of cool if they win a World Series in 2024, you know, for the first time. It'd be, there'd be some nice symmetry to that. Well, there's not only symmetry, but there's also an irony and a, uh, let's call it a technicality to all of that, right? Um, and now this is certainly uh, skating into the world of, of nerdism. So so bear with me for a second, right? Yeah. So you're talking about all that sort of legacy and and and, and, and bending backwards towards uh, towards history and then some of the parallels, frankly, uh, to some of the uh, events of some of the of the, the previous two major league baseball teams. But it's it it's um, you know the more you look at the, the history of of uh, pro baseball in in the Washington D.C. area, the more you recognize that uh, in many respects the history of uh, uh, the the official history of these teams. Uh, is interestingly not uh, Washington's, right? Because, you know, if you really think about it, the lineage of the original franchise, right, rests certainly in the record books in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, the second mm-hmm. versions, right, has been has, uh, uh, gone its way into the world of the Texas Rangers and into their uh, their history logs. And, and frankly, uh, today's uh, uh, Nats are... Um, you know, are uh, the former Montreal Expos, right? So right. it yeah. almost it almost feels a little, um, and maybe this is almost indicative of Washington D.C. itself, right? It, it, there's a transient nature to it. Uh, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of. Uh, although, it, look, it's not just a, a a government city, or or sadly, a partially uh, open government city anymore, <laughs> right? It's a much right. more uh, diverse and 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 business uh, hub, right? A multi right. Uh, multi state, multi region, right? But. Um, it's just interesting, right, that in all this history and, and and teams in the earliest days of the pro game, right, uh, start go yeah. in in the in the city of D.C. Yet it, it has been uh, just kind of uh, uh, ripped. Uh, uh, its history has is sort of gone to various places and 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 or imported from other places versus it being its own uh, full and and uh, owned uh, history of its own. Right. Although. Um and maybe it's a good place to close it. I, I would, uh, I would make a point about uh, 2014 was was to me as someone who follows this stuff was there was some a, a nice uh, um, irony in the fact that the uh, you know the senator sorry then I slip into senator speak the Nats had won the uh, National League uh, East and the Rangers and the Twins both came in last place so it was kind of like this like 
kind of uh, sticking it to the old teams that had abandoned Washington, those teams, you know, those things, things kind of ebb and flow, but at least at that one snapshot, those two teams had left, uh, had left for the last, last place finishers and the, the nationals were ascended. All right. Here's my last question. And I'm gonna let you do some promotion. Okay. So uh, okay. how'd you get Bob Schieffer to write the uh, forward for uh, this uh, pretty cool book? Uh, you know, it was just kind of uh, using social media. I, um, I, I had the idea of getting him on there because I knew he was a big baseball fan and, and he, he was from Texas, so he's kind of had that Rangers connection. Um, and uh, I uh, just posted on Facebook, let me know how to reach Bob Schieffer. And a friend of mine, uh, dad, doing pretty well and so connected me. And so that's how that came about. So uh, back in a previous life, I, uh, I was a, uh, an assistant producer at uh, CBS News in the Washington, D.C. Bureau. Uh, this is back in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, I remember vividly one summer, I think it was 91 or so, or 90, uh, and, uh, after uh, the evening news and, uh, and Dan Rather, uh, then the anchor of the evening news, uh, the broadcast was finished. And uh, the, uh, the conversation and the, uh, uh, the intensity moved uh, to a different level uh, in the newsroom as both uh, Messrs. Schieffer and Rather and a few of their friends uh, started to uh, get down to uh, picking their fantasy baseball uh, franchises for the season. So uh, it's funny that Bob and and Dan obviously go back to their Texas uh, roots, right? Uh, very much baseball fans. And uh, so that's an interesting little uh, little anecdote there, uh, indicative of nothing. Yeah. All right. So now's your chance. Propo- give us uh, give us some specs on the book and um, where we can find it and maybe uh, any other projects you may have uh, envisioned uh, in your head for uh, for future work. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So it's called uh, You Gotta Have Heart, History of Washington Baseball. Um, and uh, it, uh, it came out in um, 2013. Uh, it was to commemorate the, uh, the first division title that Washington won. Um, and uh, you can get on Amazon and, and uh, bookstores and that sort of thing. Uh, as far as new projects, uh, my, my publisher has had this sort of standing offer that uh, I could do a new edition of this book new chapter, et cetera, you know, if the Nationals, if and when they, they make it back to the World Series. And so every, you know, year, not this, not this past season, but, but most, most of the past four or five seasons, it looks like, oh, it's going to happen. And I'm, you know, following the action very closely as a fan primarily, but also in the back of my head thinking this is going to be great stuff for a new book, and it uh, never happens. So uh, that's kind of like my Jerusalem, I guess, you know, next year in the World Series, and we can get a new edition out. Well, I'm sorry you have to wait for the vicissitudes of uh, of uh, <laughs> Nationals uh, opportunities. But uh, for all you Minnesota Twins fans, you uh, Texas Rangers fans, and frankly, you uh, you uh, Montreal Expos fans, uh, in many respects, this episode uh, uh, is uh, is a tip of the baseball cap to you as well because uh, you're part of this story too, uh, and it all emanates and uh, centers around or goes through at least. Uh, the metropolis known as Washington, D.C. And uh, Fred Frommer, I want to say thank you for uh, regaling us in a, a, a surprisingly rich, and I think, frankly, to most baseball fans, maybe are a bit surprised, I certainly am, at, at just how uh, deep and uh, um, uh, and full-flavored uh, the, the history of baseball in uh, the nation's capital has been. And um, I, uh, I urge all our listeners to uh, to get this book, to get a, a true sense of it. And, and for your sake, I hope the Nationals... Uh, uh, break through the promised land so you can get a, a reissue out there. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking with you. All 
right, there it is. Uh, betting fans, uh, time to go to Vegas, uh, or frankly, just about any state right now in the United States, and uh, place your money on the uh, Washington Nationals uh, for this upcoming season uh, so that we can hopefully influence and uh, uh, send a little luck uh, Fred Frommer's way so that he can uh, get a, a reissue of uh, his great book out, uh, hopefully to uh, commemorate uh, a uh, championship season with the uh, Washington Nationals. It's getting close. Uh, and uh, it would be great to see uh, Fred's book uh, reissued with uh, all that sort of uh, historical closure, shall we say, uh, with a Washington Nationals uh, baseball championship. Uh, the book, though, of course, uh, is available prior to that happening. And uh, we uh, urge you to take a look uh, for it and of it. It's a, it's a great read. It's called You Gotta Have Heart. Uh, it is uh, published by Taylor Trade Publishing. It came out in the in the summer of 2013 is available uh, wherever good books are found. Of course, you can find a copy of it uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 96. Oh my God, 96. Uh, And you will see uh, a link to the book. You will see a whole bunch of great uh, images around this this episode, uh, around the senators, around the nationals, uh, a little bit of Homestead Grays. It's all with Griffith Stadiums. It's all in there. Uh, and, uh, of course, when you, uh, you buy the book through that link, uh, you'll be giving us a couple of shekels and, uh, helping keep our lights on. And we always appreciate that too, for sure. Uh, and, um, we, uh, appreciate you, uh, listening as always. And, uh, when you go to goodseatstillavailable.com, you're going to see all the uh, other stuff, uh, uh, pertaining to the show. You want to sign up for our weekly newsletter. So, you know, what we're going to be talking about each week. Great. By all means, do that. Uh, you can uh, follow our social media feeds. You can find us at uh, Good Seats uh, Still, Good Seats Still on Twitter. You can find us at uh, Good Seats Still available on Instagram. Uh, you will find a page uh, devoted to us on Facebook. You can also send us an email from a link there on the website, or you can send that to us directly if you want. That's hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And I got to underline this. I can't stress this enough. Wherever you can rate and review the show, especially on Apple iTunes slash uh, Apple Podcasts, whatever they're calling it this week, uh, there or anywhere else, frankly, where you can leave a review or tell your friends. By all means, we uh, appreciate you doing so. Uh, five stars, always welcome. And uh, some good uh, good words so that other people like you, or maybe not even like you, might even find the show and uh, download it and, uh, and subscribe as well. And that, that'll help... Uh, Help get our numbers up and uh, continue to tell the uh, the good word and the good fun that we uh, we'd like to share with you each week. So by all means, please, and we thank you ahead of time uh, for uh, giving us some love uh, in the rankings and the ratings wherever you can do so. We also want to thank, last but not least, our friends at Podfly Productions, and in particular, yes, you know, you know who that is. It's time to say hello to our friend Jerry Payne, the good doctor who always uh, does a great job putting our. Uh, our various pieces together. We thank you and a tip of the old baseball cap with a big fat white W on it this week uh, for the Washington uh, baseball uh, aficionados out there. We uh, say hello and thank you to Jerry Payne and Podfly Productions. You'll find them uh, more about them and all their good stuff at podfly.net. Okay. As promised, we're going to leave you with this little clip that, uh, that we alluded to before. Here it is from damn Yankees, the team forever immortalized. Uh, in Broadway show history about the uh, the Washington Senators. Until next week, take care, everybody. Now listen to me. This game of baseball is only one half skill. The other half is something else. Something bigger. You gotta have heart.
you really need his heart When the odds are saying you'll never win That's when the grin should start You gotta have hope Mustn't sit around and mope Nothing's half as bad as it may appear Wait till next year and hope When your luck is batting zero Get your chin up off the floor Mister, you can be a hero You can open any door There's nothing to it but to do it You gotta have heart Miles and miles and miles of heart Oh, it's fine to be a genius, of course But keep that old horse before the cart First you gotta have heart We haven't got a great pitcher. We haven't got a great ball club. We haven't got what do we got? We've got heart. All you really need is heart. When the odds are saying you'll never win, that's when the grin should start. Now you're getting the idea. We've got hope, we don't sit around and mope, not a solitary sod do we need, Mr. Cause we've got hope. Boys, I'm proud of you. We're so happy that we're humming. <laughs> That's the hardy thing to do. Ho, ho, ho. Cause we know our ship will come in. <laughs> so it's ten years overdue. Ho, ho, ho. We've got heart, miles and miles and miles of heart. Oh, it's fine to be a genius, of course, but keep that old horse before the cart. So what the heck's the use of crying? Why should we curse? We gotta get better, cause we can't get worse. And to add to it, we've got heart. Smokey baby, let's go get him. Right, Rocky. Now, boys, don't forget what I told you. You betcha, Benny. Come on, Rocky, you tell him. We've got heart. Miles and miles and miles of heart. Oh, it's fine to be a genius, of course. But keep that old horse before the car. Who minds them pop bottles flying? The hisses and boos. The team has been consistent. Yeah, we always lose. But, but we're, we're laughing cause... We've got heart.